As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This little bourgeois, raised indecently, judges everything by her own measure, makes the court her slum. Louis, despite his scruples, feebly burns for her, and his ridiculous passion makes all Paris laugh. A contemporary poissonnade, noted by Charles Cole in his journal. Hello and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.12, Madame de Pompadour, The Fisher's Daughter. Last time, a girl was taken to a fortune teller, who told her she will one day become the mistress of the King of France. As we left the action, that prophecy came true, with a fateful encounter between Renette d'Etoile and Louis XV at the ball of the clipped yew trees. In this episode, we will see Renette solidify her position as the official mistress amassing more power than any mistress in French royal history. But first of all, a very quick public service announcement that this will be the last episode of 2023, as I'm going to be in the US over Christmas, far, far away from my microphone. I will bring plenty of books with me though, so I hope to have the next episode out soon after the festive season. And a very special season's greetings to all of my amazing Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And what an amazing Christmas present that would be to me. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post bonus content from the episode, such as pictures and maps. To all my new listeners, welcome. The rest of you, 
Welcome back. Once Renette had caught the eye of the king, it never left her. At a ball a few days later, he never left her side. And after gently and briefly resisting his advances for the sake of form, they consummated their affair. It was not long before she had left her marital bed, never to return, taking apartments in Versailles. She may have been the king's lover, but her elevation to the official position of maîtresse en titre was not something that could happen overnight. Versailles was a place of rigid formality and protocol. Everything had to be done in a certain way and a particular order, even to become the king's official mistress. The most important part of this was that she had to join the court. For the most part, former maîtresse en titre had already been a part of the court, but not so for the middle-class Renette. She needed status. She needed a title, and she couldn't obtain it while still legally married. So, step one, ditch her husband. Spare a thought for poor Charles Guillaume, who was distraught at being cuckolded by the king. He went into such breakup blues that his servants hid all the weapons and sharp objects in his home for fear that he might end his life. In a fever of grief, he wrote a begging letter to his wife imploring her to come home. Somewhat cruelly, it has to be said, Renette read the letter to the king, perhaps thinking it was all rather funny and wanted him to share in the joke. Louis, though, thought Renette rather indelicate and vulgar in this, saying to her, quote, Your husband seems to be a very decent man. But this didn't stop Louis from ordering Monsieur Etoile to agree to the legal separation from his wife. Husband now dispensed with, it was time for step two, find her a sufficiently grand title to grant her position at court. The one chosen was that of one of Renette's neighbours. The Marquis of Pompadour had recently died, with the title passing through his daughter to her husband. Louis brought the title back from the family and bestowed it upon his mistress. She was now what history knows her as, Madame la Marquise de Pompadour. And now she was ready for step three, which was to be presented. This would have to be delayed for a few months while Louis went off to Flanders, where he was present for the victory over an allied army led by the Duke of Cumberland at Fontenoy. Better days for British-led armies in Flanders over the French were to come. Though separated by distance, they continued to satiate their passion through letters, exchanging over 80 in a four-month period. Renette didn't spend all of her time pining, though. She was in training. She had been brought up to succeed in Parisian society. Versailles was something else entirely, and she had to learn all of the rules. Her tutors were the abbot of Berny, 
an affable and friendly man who loved nothing more than to sit and chat, and the Marquis of Gordon a member of the king's inner circle. She could not have had better tutors, and they would both remain lifelong friends and allies to Renette. When the king returned from Flanders, she was ready for her coming out party. On the 14th of September 1745, wearing the traditional black gown, Renette was led to the king's council chamber. She was accompanied by the elderly Princess of Conti, who had agreed to present her and act as her godmother. It was a somewhat awkward affair, where the king, who had slept with Renette only the previous night, had to pretend that they'd never met before, such as the absurdity of court protocol. Red in the face, he barely acknowledged her, dismissing her with a curt nod. Continuing with the theme of awkwardness, she now had to go and meet the queen. This was the main event, the encounter everyone present had come to see. But if they had expected a cutting remark or a rude tone, they would be mistaken. Queen Marie was friendly and charming, asking after a mutual friend, the Marquis of Cessac. This both put Renette at ease and subtly told everyone present that Madame de Pompadour belonged at court and was welcome to stay. Marie knew that her husband would always have mistresses. It was pointless to fight it, even if she was so inclined. And at least this one seemed nice, polite, and respectful. Not like her haughty predecessors, who had denigrated her at every turn. And that was that. All stages complete. Achievement unlocked. She was the king's official mistress. So, what did that involve, exactly? Well, there is the obvious, you know, the sexual part, and we will come back to that. But the role went far beyond that. Her job was to please the king. That was her raison d'etre, her one purpose. Any activity that didn't please him was ditched. Any clothing or jewellery he didn't like were gone. Any hobbies he didn't enjoy, she dropped. Now, this all sounds a little bit depressing, but let's remember this was a time when women had very few rights. It was far from unusual for a woman to have to make many sacrifices for the man in her life. Renette wasn't all that different in that respect. Nor was she now just a mindless Stepford wife with no personality or life of her own. She still made time for her family, particularly her mother who was ill, and wrote often to her father, who was continuing his rehabilitation to polite society following his return from exile. She ensured his name was fully cleared, his debts were written off, and even got him a new title and estate. But everyone was in no doubt that pleasing the king sexually was her prime task. And perhaps surprisingly, it wasn't one at which she particularly excelled. As I said in the last episode, Louis had a voracious sexual appetite, one that no woman could possibly hope to keep up with, and Renette was no different. She hid it well, but she was quite a sickly woman who was easily tired. Indeed, she had a chairlift installed in the staircase that connected their bedrooms, as she was so exhausted from the descent down to her lover's chamber that it was affecting her sexual performance. Nightly, all-night lovemaking was not really something she was equipped to do, either physically or emotionally, and this was a big problem. If she failed to keep the king satisfied sexually, 
then he would find himself another woman who could, and there would be no shortage of potential suitors. And people could see she was struggling and mocked her for it. Somewhat creative courtiers would pen slam poems about her, which became known as Poissonnade after her maiden name. I read one at the start of the episode, trust me it's a lot funnier in French than in translation. They called her the Fisher's Daughter, again playing on her maiden name. This focus on her maiden name, Poisson, was very deliberate. It was classic snobbery. It reminded her that she was not one of them. Not really. She was bourgeois, not an aristocrat. The daughter of a femme galante, not of a great duke. Not suited to being in their company, still less elevated to the king's bed. In order to try and keep up with the king's need for constant sexual gratification, she tried every remedy possible, every aphrodisiac on the market. She lived on a diet of celery, truffles and chocolate infused with vanilla. Anything to keep her libido going, all at the expense of her health. Things got so bad that one of her friends, the Duchess of Brancard, staged an intervention, throwing these so-called aphrodisiacs into the fire, which was always ablaze in Renette's quarters as she felt the cold severely. Renette broke down in front of her friend, blubbing through sobs that she was at her wit's end, that the king was sure to tire of her if she didn't find a way to keep up with him in the bedroom. Brancado gave some sage advice. Quote, Your diet won't stop him from leaving you, and it will kill you. You must make yourself indispensable to the king. Don't rebuff him, of course, but just let time do its work. Renette's strength had always been her charm, her ability to own any room she was in. She was a convivial hostess, a great singer and actress, and could make friends and allies wherever she went. She needed to play to her strengths. She spent enough time around Louis to know his character and understand the deeply flawed man to whom her life was now inextricably entwined. She began to see, despite some of his more lavish antics, how shy he was, how insecure. He was a man born into almost infinite luxury, and so lacked the drive to do, well, anything. Nothing really interested or absorbed him. Care of the kingdom was entrusted to others, and he just sort of wafted about. He was directionless, rudderless. He needed, simply put, to get some hobbies. He lacked the necessary concentration to read or to study, but he did enjoy the theatre. And luckily, that was something at which Renette excelled. In a world without television or cinema, the theatre was prized as the height of entertainment, and Renette had been trained by some of the best acting and singing coaches that money could buy. There was a theatre at Versailles, but that was large and meant for grand performances. What Renette had in mind was considerably more intimate and exclusive. Together, she and Louis set up a small stage near the king's apartments that became known as the Théâtre des Petits Cabinets. It could only house an audience of about 14, but it was sumptuously decorated, and the select few that were invited to the performances received programmes printed on silk. Louis and Renette chose the company of actors and actresses together, along with the best directors, art designers and backstage hands money could buy. 
They also put together a surprisingly strict set of rules to which the whole company must abide, regardless of rank. Everyone had to be talented, no beginners allowed. They had to attend all the rehearsals and were not allowed to turn down roles that they felt they were beneath them. Perhaps demonstrating which of them was really driving this enterprise, the actresses were put in charge of choosing the plays they put on and setting the date and time for the rehearsals. And given Renette would be part of the troupe, there's no surprise who would be leading those discussions. Louis most enjoyed comedies and short operas. They were most in line with his limited attention span. So these made up a significant part of the company's repertoire. The first performance they did was of Moliere's comedy Tartuffe, in which Renette played Dorine, a wise servant girl who exposes the big plot at the centre of the play. Perhaps this was a deliberate bit of casting. An outsider far cleverer than the fancy aristocrats around her, she must have seen much of herself in Doreen. These exclusive performances quickly became the most sought-after ticket in Versailles, and it doesn't seem that this was mere obsequious flattery. Renette seems to have been a very gifted actress, and her triple performance was compared favourably the best professional actors on the Parisian stage. Their success prompted a move to a larger 40-seat venue around the ambassador's staircase, but eventually, as costs mounted, this little theatrical foray would come under a great deal of scrutiny from some of Renette's opponents. One of her great critics at court was the Duke of Richelieu, the great-nephew of the late Cardinal Richelieu, who had dominated the French government during the reign of Louis XIII. He held many roles, including that of Marshal in the army, but his most significant was as First Gentleman of the Bedchamber. This powerful position gave him close proximity to the king in private, and therefore ample opportunity for him to enrich himself, promote favourites, and denigrate his opponents. In her famous biography of Renette, Nancy Mitford describes him as, quote, Charming, handsome, brave, wicked and corrupt, a traitor in his soul, one of those to whom all is permitted and forgiven. In other words, the consummate politician who has existed for centuries. He was also an inveterate womanizer, even for the time, attempting to seduce, among others, the king's mother. That indiscretion earned him some prison time in the Bastille, but that didn't stop him from seeing his parade of mistresses, which included Jeanne Bessou, who would later become Madame du Berry, another future mistress of Louis XV. He wouldn't stay in prison for long, though, as he and Louis were firm friends, sharing the same insatiable libido, though Richelieu was a great deal more confident than the king. He was also a world-class snob, who hated the idea that some bourgeois woman could rival him in terms of influence over the king. He had been close with the late Marianne de Mailly, Louis's most powerful and ruthless mistress before he met Renette, and wasn't happy with her replacement. At first he assumed that Renette would just flame out and make way from some other woman whom he could more easily control, but he soon came to realise that she was in it for the long haul. He did everything he could to make life unpleasant for her. He made snide remarks about her fashion sense or hospitality. He pointedly didn't laugh at her jokes and made fun at her at every opportunity. 
On one occasion, when he knew she was in bed with a headache, he spent all night banging on the floor overhead, just to make her miserable. He was also in charge of the court's entertainments, which allowed him to go after Renette's theatre. He began to deny her access to various theatrical warehouses that he controlled, which housed the costumes, props and furniture she needed for her productions. He also forbade musicians, workmen, stagehands and production staff from participating in her plays. Renette asked Louis to send him away, but the king would not, saying that if he, quote, put him out the door, he'll come back by the chimney. He did, however, have a quiet word with the Duke, which enabled Renette's plays to continue. Eventually, however, Richelieu would have his way. Renette's theatre may have gained rave reviews, but it was also costing a fortune, and her critics made it clear to Louis' subjects, who were increasingly overtaxed, that it was her theatre that was to blame. Ludicrous stories about her extravagance were spread around, so much that, after five years, she closed her theatre down under increasing public pressure. This whole affair poisoned her reputation with ordinary French citizens, one which she would never really repair. Renette knew she needed friends and allies at Versailles to support her. Not being of aristocratic blood, she didn't have many when she arrived. So, she made some. Her great benefactor, Tornahem, was made director of the Versailles Royal Buildings, and her brother, Abel, was appointed as his deputy. Other family members found positions in the royal household as well, but the key ally she cultivated at court was also the most unlikely, the Queen. Wives and mistresses don't often make easy gal pals, but this was not an ordinary situation. As I said previously, Marie had been constantly humiliated by her husband's former mistresses, and ignored by him personally. She also struggled with the formality and artifice of Versailles life. Remember, like Renette, she was an outsider, she was the daughter of an exiled foreign royal of a minor kingdom. She and Renette were kindred spirits, arguably, even though they didn't share many interests. Though she spent much of her time in religious contemplation, Marie had one great weakness, and that was gambling. She spent her evenings at the card table and wasn't all that good at it, running up huge debts. And on the rare occasions that she won, she gave the money away to charity rather than paying down what she owed. It wasn't exactly what one might call a recipe for financial success. Until now, the king had refused to pay his wife's debts, but Renette persuaded him to do so. And this wasn't an isolated act of kindness. She was attentive and generous when talking with the queen, and took an interest in her charitable activities. None of the other mistresses, still less her husband herself, allowed any time to the Queen, but Renette was different. She made the time, and attended all Marie's charitable events that she could, and if she couldn't, made sure to be effusive with her apologies. And, over time, Renette's example and gentle prodding encouraged Louis to be a better husband to Marie. 
For example, she persuaded him to invite his wife to his pleasure palace at Choisy. This was his favourite retreat, a bit of a lad's pad, to which he had studiously avoided bringing his wife. You know, it might cramp his style. Indeed, this had always been the domain of his other romantic conquests. By ensuring that Marie felt respected and included, she caused the Queen to remark that, quote, if there has to be a mistress, better this one than any other. She got on less well with Louis's children. His teenage eldest son, the Dauphin, naturally also called Louis, so I'll just refer to him by his title for ease, had taken against her from the very start, childishly sticking his tongue out at her during her presentation at court. The king had been furious at his son for this slight, exiling him from court until he formally apologised to Renette. And while he did so, it was begrudging. His daughters weren't keen on her either, often refusing to talk to her and referring to her as Maman Putain or Whore Mother. It was her gifts as a hostess, though, that really enabled her to make her mark in these early years. This was something for which she had been successful at all her life. She had run a very successful salon in Paris and brought those skills to Versailles. Every day, the king would return from his hunt, survey the crowd of nobles, and select 20 or so to join him for dinner. Those who won these precious golden tickets were treated to an elegant and stimulated evening organised and compared by Madame de Pompadour. She wasn't a fan of stuffy and overly formal evenings. Instead, an evening with Louis and Renette was elegant but simple. More of a family gathering vibe than a state dinner, designed to give a feeling of intimacy rather than intimidation. She began to pepper the attendees of these little soirees with her own intimates and treated these and other court entertainments as intelligence gathering opportunities. She made good friends with Louis's chief of police and the royal postmaster and became the centre of a vast web of informants and gossips who kept her abreast of everything that was going on. That was how she spent her evenings. By day, she filled her time with acquiring new chateaus spending vast sums of money remodelling, decorating and furnishing them, before moving on to the next project. Louis had always been interested in architecture, so this was another way she could maintain his interest in her, though the expense was enormous. Sadly, few of these houses survive, most didn't make it out of the French Revolution, though one of them, the Elysee Palace, did make it through more or less intact, and is now the official residence of the French president. If she were alive today, we might have called her a bit of a shopaholic. Every day saw crates of porcelain, crystal, and jewel-encrusted everything arrive at the palace. China animals were her particular favourite. All her drapings and furnishings had to be bespoke. She couldn't have something she owned be in the home of some rival. Her agents travelled the world from India to Japan, searching for the next must-see trinket for her to display and show off. Indeed, she was such a great patron of artists and artisans that she has become synonymous with the Rococo period, an artistic movement that took over from the dominant Baroque stylings of the 17th and early 18th centuries. Francois Boucher was a particular favourite of hers, 
His paintings adorned her walls, his costumes and scenery were all over her stage performances, and he even painted erotic scenes on the walls of Louis' bedroom at her request. And he wasn't alone. The likes of Maurice Quentin de la Tour, Jean-Baptiste Pigalle, Etienne Maurice Falconet, Jean-Baptiste Pierre, Jean-Baptiste Oudry, all famed artists of the period, all patronised by the deep pockets of Madame de Pompadour. So, how was she paying for all of this? It certainly wasn't out of her own pocket. She had no real wealth to speak of. Nor was it out of her allowance. That was relatively modest. No, these were state funds she was spending, and in vast quantities. What is perhaps surprising is that before now, Louis had a reputation of being a bit of a penny pincher. Previous mistresses had received paltry allowances whereas Renette was able to pry open the royal purse strings and pour out millions of livres at the drop of a hat. Staggering sums beyond the comprehension of most French men and women. This all demonstrated her power and position, but also made her unpopular, both with the masses and, shockingly enough, with the man charged with overseeing the royal finances. Philibert Ori, the Count of Vignori, was one of those rarefied civil servants in Louis's government, someone who was honest, competent, and long-lasting. As Comptroller of Finance, he had run the nation's books for around 15 years and done a pretty good job of it. It was his very competence and honesty, though, that got him into trouble. He queried some of Renette's spending, and was curt with her when she asked him to do her a favour and award some army contracts to her friends. When he was dismissed soon after, it was widely believed Renette was the puppeteer pulling the king's strings. Indeed, shockingly enough, his replacement was more than willing to scratch her back and approve all of her spending. But though Vignori had not been a fan of Renette, and still less after she got him fired, she had four bigger enemies at court. We've already met the first, the Duke of Richelieu. The next two were brothers, René Louis, the Marquess of Argenson, and Marc Pierre, the Count of Argenson, with the final being Jean, the Count of Moreva. All four of these were the sons of ministers in Louis XIV's government. They were used to things being done a certain way. Most had known the king all his life and didn't enjoy taking orders from a woman. Fortunately for your humble podcaster, she saw off the Marquis of Argenson fairly early on, so we mostly only have to deal with one of the Argensons. She managed this by allying with someone who hated him even more than she did. René-Louis Argenson was the foreign minister, and was well known for being anti-Spanish, which didn't exactly endear him to Louise Elizabeth, who was married to a Spanish prince, and so is more commonly known as Madame Infante. René Louis would find himself out of a job in 1747, which would allow him a long retirement, much of which he devoted to writing his memoirs, which, let's just say, are not exactly complimentary to Madame de Pompadour. Maurepas lasted a little longer, but he too would pay the price of opposition. He was the minister for Marine, who could not believe that this bourgeois woman had such a powerful influence over the king 
and that she was able to overrule him. Him, the Count of Morepa. On one occasion, he issued a lettre de cachet, a legal document that arrested someone without trial, and Renette insisted that it be revoked. When he indignantly appealed to the king, Louis meekly replied, quote, Do as Madame says. On another occasion, she got so tired of his blustering during a meeting that she dismissed him. Quote, you are turning the king yellow, Monsieur Maurepas. Good day to you. Maurepas appealed to the king, but he said nothing, giving him no choice but to leave, steam billowing from his ears. Though he was a powerful politician, Maurepas' real talents lay not with red tape, but with his poisonous pen. He was the inventor and most prolific writer of the Poissonade, and his hurtful and cutting critiques of Renette's looks, fashion, and social status were legendary. He wasn't subtle about it. He didn't think he needed to be. He and Louis had grown up together and were very close. The king thought he was a top lad, a great laugh. Even though he insulted his mistresses, he bridled at the thought of admonishing him. Growing in complacency, Maripa's ditties became nastier and nastier, being whispered and then repeated quite openly around the court, and still the king did nothing. But, eventually, Maripa went too far. One night in 1749, Renette sat down to dinner at one of her soirees, when she found a note embedded in her napkin. On it was written a poissonade. Now, again, I will preface this by saying this is somewhat wittier and more musical in French than it is in translation. But it roughly reads, quote, By your noble and free manner, Iris, you enchant our hearts. On our path you strew flowers, but they are white flowers. Now this, on the face of it, sounds innocuous, but it hinted at a very embarrassing truth. Renette was suffering from a condition called leucorrhea. Without wishing to get too graphic, this was a profuse white vaginal discharge, hence its other name, Flor Albus, or the Whites. It is speculated this was caused by a tearing of the womb she suffered during the birth of her daughter. Renette usually took these mocking poissonades on the chin, but this one went far beyond the pale. The note was unsigned, but it was an open secret that Maripa had written it. She was so agitated and upset that she became very unwell. Indeed, a miscarriage around this time is blamed on the incident. And her doctor told the king that he was concerned that the stress and worry she was suffering was causing her serious medical harm. Renette even became convinced that Maripa wanted to have her killed, or at least that's what she told the king. She begged him to dismiss his friend, but the minister was unconcerned. His mate would never get rid of him for his mistress. Bros before hoes and all of that. Which made it all the more surprising when he received a note when he turned up at work one morning. Quote, I have no further use of your services. I request you resign your ministry forthwith. As your estate at Pontchartrain is too near, I request you retire to Bourges this week, speaking to no one but close relations. Maripa couldn't believe it, but there was nothing he could do. He had been bested. Yet another enemy of Madame de Pompadour had bitten the dust. 
The fall of Maripa demonstrated to all where real power lay in Versailles now. If one of the king's favourites, a man he had known all his life, could be cast out on his ear on the orders of his mistress, then no one was safe. In the words of her biographer, J.J. Mangan, quote, After Maripa, there was never again a question of Pompadour's power, only whom she would befriend and whom she would strike down. She was the font of all power. If you wanted it, you'd do well to be her ally. If you wanted to keep it, you had to make nice. This was as true for foreign dignitaries as it was for Louis's ministers. The Austrian ambassador reported back that, quote, After paying my respects to the royal family, I was taken to a sort of second queen, who had the air of being the first. One of her allies, the Duke of Croy, wrote, quote, it was most agreeable to deal with such a pretty prime minister, whose laughter was enchanting and who was such a good listener. There was perhaps not a single office or favour that had not come from her. A somewhat less generous review comes from her old enemy, the exiled Marquis of Argenson. Quote, she sells everything, even regiments. She arranges, she decides, she behaves as though the king's ministers were hers. More than ever, she is the first minister. She dominates the king as strong personalities dominate the weak. She was running a government, flipping houses, satisfying the endless sexual demands of the king, and keeping up an increasingly demanding social calendar. This would have worn out a woman with the constitution of an ox. But Renette was far more delicate than that, and this ferocious pace would eventually pay a mortal toll. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. <laughs> 